LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we are talking with Andy Thomas. Andy is one of England's most prolific authors and lecturers on unexplained mysteries and speaks widely in the UK and abroad. Um, His latest and most major investigation into the mystery realms is contained in his book The Truth Agenda, Making Sense of Unexplained Mysteries, Global Cover-Ups and Prophecies for Our Times. Uh, That was published uh, first back in 2009 and then again in a revised and updated edition in 2011. Uh, Andy is author of seven other books exploring the unexplained, including the acclaimed Vital Signs, a complete guide to the crop circle mystery, which has been described by many as a definitive guide to the subject. Uh, He's also founder of the Changing Times organisation, which holds events to spread alternative views on important political and social issues. Um, As a busy lecturer, Andy is renowned for his striking presentations on the unexplained and global cover-ups. He's also co-presenter of the Glastonbury Symposium, one of the UK's biggest and longest-running alternative events which takes place across three days each summer. The subject of our discussion today is 2012, the predictions and prophecies, the dangers and opportunities which surround it, and some of the physical, energetic and spiritual changes which may result on the cosmic, planetary and human levels. In this context, we also discuss the significance of the London 2012 Olympics and what at this moment in time appears to be the inexorable rise of a global police state. Hello and welcome Andy Thomas and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's a pleasure, good to be here. Now Andy, we're here today uh, in general to talk about 2012. Uh, That infamous year is finally upon us, we're a few months into it now and it seems that it's been part of popular consciousness for a long time. Uh, but in fact, I mean, I have an interest in all manner of esoteric uh, subjects going back um, to the 1980s. And it was not a popular topic back then. And it seems that at some point, 2012, I mean, you would expect it, I suppose, perhaps to loom larger as the date approached. But at some point, it really seemed to kick into overdrive and everywhere from all angles, uh, mainstream and the sidelines and popular culture and all sorts of different avenues, 2012 became um, virtually an obsession. Well, I think if you look back over the last sort of 15 years or so, I would say, and this is a personal view, but I think the turning point for the 2012 prophecy sort of awareness was the millennium. Because, I mean, if anybody can cast their minds back that far, we had so much build-up to the millennium. There was talk of the millennium bug and the computers crashing and, you know, the world going back to medieval times overnight and all of this. 
But I think it was also tapping into something that we always get come a millennium. I mean, if you go back to the year 1999, uh, there was enormous expectation that year 1000 was going to be a profound year. I mean, yes. in religious terms, of course, there was a huge expectation that it was going to be the second coming. I mean, if you look back at the Gospels and what's in the Bible, it's fairly clear most scholars agree that the apostles and the followers of, of Christ in the early years were expecting him to come back within their lifetime. And then when he didn't, of course, then there was a continual change of, OK, well, now it must be this time or this time. And so when it failed to happen for a thousand years, obviously, you know, the year 1000 had to be it. Um, and of course, it wasn't. So what I thought was really interesting was that a thousand years on again, come the millennium, not much had really changed. I mean, you had so much expectation again, well, maybe this is the second coming, but you also had a, a wider feeling of some potential shift or change. And when it turned out not to be the millennium bug, when it turned out not to be the second coming, that's when the interest in the 2012 stuff began to really come to the surface. Because, I mean, I had certainly been aware of it bubbling up in about the mid-90s. Uh, but suddenly people felt that there was something unfulfilled and still something needed to happen. And that's when they thought, aha, maybe it's that 2012 thing that we were sort of vaguely hearing about. And really, I would say that's when it began to take off and suddenly all the build up to where we are now really began, I would say. Yeah. I mean, what is it with um, and is it a sort of a, an ancient um religious thing effectively this kind of obsession with the end of the world because i grew up with uh, i mean some everyone will remember the cold war uh, i mean certain of us certainly of a certain age but uh, people in the uk will certainly remember the late 70s and and uh, protect and survive uh, and i grew up you know hiding under my school desk rehearsing what to do uh, when the russians bombed us and that was what we lived throughout the 80s with which was the you know global annihilation through nuclear war. And it seems that every era, in fact, especially in the industrial age, every decade seems to have its its uh, global threat. Well, I think it is programmed into us as human beings. I, I certainly think, you know, obviously the religions have a lot to, to do with that because, I mean, certainly, you know, we've been officially a Christian country for something like, you know, 1500, 1600 years. Um, and so the whole book of Revelation, you know, you live a good life and you'll be saved when the apocalypse begins and the new Jerusalem comes. It, it's in our blood. You, you can't get away from it. And all around the world, I mean, you've got other belief systems that also tap into that. You know, you've got the Kali Yuga time in the Hindu religion, for instance, which, you know, is all about sort of, you know, destroying what is to make way for something new. So when you start to look at all this, you realize that religiously we've been quite sort of conditioned really to be ready constantly for some huge thing and as you say when then you had you know the power to actually destroy the world by human hands uh with nuclear war and all of this of course that changed things because it became something that really could sort of happen in a very tangible way and you're quite right i mean you know we grew up you and I and anybody from that sort of generation from the sort of mid 50s onwards with that feeling, hang on a minute, you know, at any moment your world could literally explode. 
Uh, and I think that's had a profound effect on us. So therefore, our radar's always been out for could there be anything else that might bring this all crashing down around our ears? So I think that's why by the time the 2012 sort of uh, awareness began to bubble up, we, we were very tuned in to looking in for stuff like that. And so it's time had come, of course. And yet, um, we'll, we'll see what happens, you know, as the rest of 2012 unfolds, of course, and uh, whether we make it to 2013, let's assume that we will, <laughs> we'll see what the aftermath is like, uh, because certainly um, the Y2K thing is a very recent, uh, feels very recent to me. And afterwards, the, you know, the general attitude seemed to, to revert to, well, of course, of course, nothing was going to happen. What did you expect? <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the, I think, difficulties that we've got at the moment is that so much false expectation has been placed on this date. And a lot of that's been put there by people who, I, mean, I don't mean this rudely, have not really, truly understood what this is all about. And I'm hoping, you know, in this conversation, we'll, we'll get down to understanding more clearly what this cycle was meant to represent. Um, and I think anybody who's expecting all the big changes they've ever wanted to occur on one day... 21st of December 2012, which is the big turning point in the ancient calendrical uh, cycles, uh, anyone expecting that that's going to be the be all and end all, yeah, I'm sure is going to be very disappointed. And I think there's huge potential for disillusionment uh, and people turning their backs very much on all the things they've been building up to. My uh, response to that would be that would be a shame if people do. Because any shift usually takes decades, sometimes centuries, to really see what's been going on. And you sometimes need a little bit of perspective to look back at it. And when you look back, you might suddenly then realize actually how much did shift in these times. Uh, and certainly how many people changed themselves in anticipation that this might be a meaningful time. That is something that is very tangible and we should not lose sight of that because, yeah, when the date comes and goes and the world hasn't gone bang, if indeed that is the way it goes, um, there will be a rejection of all of this. But then in a little way forward in the future, people might start to look back with new eyes and realize that maybe there just was something in this but we didn't realize it at the time. Certainly 2012 is a more viable kind of uh, potential than the millennium was. And much of the millennium stuff was based, you know, very much about the computers. Mm. Uh, this does have meaning. There are prophecies all around the world that clearly there is some astronomical cycle or a cosmic cycle or something in the climate, whatever it may be, that seems to trigger off on this 5,125 year cycle, which is essentially what we're talking about here. Yeah, well, perhaps we should dive back into um, historical prophecies then. Um, I mean, it's something we could talk about for hours just, uh, you know, onto itself, but just to sort of fairly briefly go over uh, what is, what seems to be being said and what isn't actually being said in a lot, you know, because a lot of people cite um, historical prophecies uh, the Mayans and others uh, are setting uh, out very clearly what we can expect to happen and other people will take exactly the same information and say it says nothing of the sort and for people on the fringe perhaps trying to make sense of it it's well it's very difficult to do just that well yeah I mean I, I think the thing that we have to bear in mind here of course is that there are various different takes on what's supposed to happen um, a lot of the more sensationalized ones are 
shall we say, not really very founded in fact. Uh, and I think that's the problem because, you know, all this talk about the end of the world is something that the media has latched onto because there are people who, of course, are saying it's going to be the end of the world. There is one prophecy and there is one that does speak directly of that, but only one. Uh, and most of the rest of the prophecies are very much centered around shifts of consciousness, you know, a change rather than the end. And I mean, certainly when people quote the Maya calendar, which is, um, you know, what you tend to hear about mostly in the 2012 kind of world, um, they often forget that, you know, the, the end of the Maya calendar was not, in their view, the end of everything. It was the beginning of the next cycle. And they called it Creation Day. They didn't call it Doomsday. So, you know, there is this sense there of it being about something new, a step towards you know, the creation of something rather than just the end. And I think, you know, this is the problem that people have seen it very basically and latched on to essentially what I suspect are their own hopes and fears. And they projected them on to the 2012 phenomenon and therefore forget to really look at, you know, what the evidence is for it. Uh, well, quite. And when you start to explore this uh, in any detail, um, it soon becomes apparent that what's uh, at issue here uh, is actually wider cosmic cycles uh, that we can actually map and and and, and trace and, and and look at, you know, with with our own eyes or you know <laughs> with the aid of technology, and we can actually see something happening, um, you know, in in the universe around us that. It ties in with uh, with some of this um, prophecy. Well, I mean, let's pinpoint that a little bit because I think that's important to stress here. I mean, there is one thing that the ancients, it seems, you know, too much coincidence if they weren't. There's one thing that the ancients were recording. And uh, John Major Jenkins, the uh, sort of researcher of all this kind of stuff, pointed this out, that every 5,125 years or so, uh, the sun, as we look up from the earth into the sky, if you could see the Milky Way and the sun at the same time, you would see that the sun effectively is sitting at what we call galactic centre. It's right in the middle of that Milky Way band. And so that, of course, would have been seen by the ancient astronomers as something very meaningful. Uh, he believes, though, it was more than just a visual nicety. I mean, he believes that this could actually create a moment where the centre of the galaxy, the Earth, the Sun, they're aligned and that this will suddenly bring us into some kind of electromagnetic resonance with the whole galaxy, maybe for a brief time, maybe for a longer time. Uh, I mean, the interesting point about this, though, is that we're already past the exact central point that probably happened at around 1999. And yet that's not the moment that seemed to matter to the ancients. They thought it was, you know, what we're coming up for now um, that was the, the more crucial time. Almost in the same way, when you get a hurricane in the eye of the storm, there's not very much going on. But as soon as you start to move out of that and you hit the, you know, the edge of it, suddenly you're in something that's, you know, much busier, much bigger. So maybe that's what's happened here. Now, that doesn't mean that that's all there is to it. I mean, it's interesting to note that the 5,125-year um, cycle that is recorded by various ancient cultures uh, is also a division of the procession cycle. The procession is effectively a 26,000-year cycle, which, uh, of course, seems to all be connected with the wobble in the Earth's orbit. 
Uh, and some say that maybe there was an event that kicked off this cycle. That's what caused the wobble in the Earth's orbit. But, you know, whatever the echo of that event was, that we go through it at various subdivisions of that cycle. And some say we might be coming to the end of the whole 26,000 year cycle with this particular round of the smaller 5,125 year cycle. Um, so that therefore there might be a cosmic effect, there could be, you know, uh, an exposure to something emanating from the centre of the galaxy, perhaps, that we don't get exposed to uh, very often. And I think there is certainly some very interesting research which says there might be something to this. Well, you say something emanating from the centre of the galaxy. I mean, uh, people, there's much discussion about um, heightened solar activity, for example, and the potential effects of electromagnetism on the you know our bodies and brains but i mean what are you thinking of when you're referring to something from the center of the universe okay well or the, well, ga the galaxy i mean solar activity is of course the thing that we are hearing a lot about at the moment because the sun is very active at the moment some say it, we're seeing it at a part of its cycle that uh, we've not gone through before but if you look at the galactic alignment um, sort of uh, process that we were just talking about where, OK, so the sun's sort of lined up with the centre of the galaxy. I mean, we're pretty now sure astronomically that most galaxies have something like a supermassive black hole at the centre. There's something very energetic there. And we also know by looking at other galaxies that they periodically pulse out energy. Now, there is one researcher called Dr. Paul of the Alette who is an astrophysicist, and he is one of those people that's been involved over the years with examining ice core samples, uh, and especially cosmic dust levels, because cosmic dust comes into the atmosphere, it gets sucked down into the ice, and so we have a very good record of you know, various periods of the Earth history in the ice. And he realized that these sort of bands of cosmic dust were probably being brought in by what he calls super waves, these galactic pulses coming from the center. And Paul of Violette says that one of the first things that we would look for to see that one of these waves was passing through, as they do on regular intervals, in his opinion, um, we would look for solar activity to become erratic, to become stronger. Uh, and that's certainly what we're seeing at the moment. And he, and I should say, you know, several other researchers believe that what we're seeing with this heightened solar activity is a response to a changed energetic environment around our whole solar system. I mean, our solar system is plowing its way through space in motion, like so many other things are. We're constantly pushing against these X-rays and these cosmic rays coming in from the outside. And it may well be that when we get to a stronger part of what we're pushing through, that more of it gets through, the sun begins to respond. We know the heliosphere, for instance, that bubble that the sun holds our solar system in, and it's very protective. That is shrinking at the moment. I mean, that is you know, known to be the case. And some think that what's going on is the sun sort of contracting itself to try to weather going through this extra stuff that it doesn't normally go through. Now, the good news of all this is that um, Paul Violette says that the major kind of super wave that you can get, we are not due for one of those. But in his view, we're due for a smaller one, but that it will still have various dramatic effects for the Earth, for the climate, and maybe for us. Because a lot of people are saying that those energetic shifts could actually be the very things that periodically trigger some new stage in our evolution. And, you know, we do have uh, in 
the sort of the, the collective history of the human race, what fragments that we've managed to retrieve, um, stories of repeated um, cataclysmic events or um, certainly global changes uh, that may ultimately have turned out to be for the better, but just enormous um, events, polar shifts, you know, cl climate change, all sorts of, you know, sometimes paraphrased and eventually turned into myth. But human history is just replete with such events, albeit they are, you know, rare. Yeah, to be sure. And I think that that's another interesting thing that I think buried in this ancient cycle that says that this period, you know, is going to be important must surely be folklore memories of previous times. And I mean, if you take, say, the Mayan prophecies, I mean, the Mayans aren't that far back in history. They were at their peak at about AD 800. People often think that they were older than they actually are. But they did derive a lot of their beliefs from the previous Olmec civilization. Now, that has roots going further back and probably civilizations before them. And that's true of the other ancient cultures around the world, whether it planet again and again you've got the same sort of calendrical system embedded somewhere into the folklore beliefs and the ancient calendars so you have to say to that right there was something tangible it seems they knew there was some kind of shift and as i say it doesn't mean that everything happens on one day i think that's probably ridiculous to say that but something has to have a center point. And they knew that somewhere around this kind of crossing over point, there was always shit. Something seemed to happen. And, you know, many people would argue we are seeing that all around. That there is increased hurricane activity. There is increased volcanic activity. You know, there are changes going on with the sun. And there are shifts in consciousness. I mean, if you look around you at just the political and the social upheavals going on, you know, the Arab uprisings and everything that's going on here with the Euro and the West, there's a sense that what used to feel stable and normal suddenly isn't. And obviously, periodically, we're going to go through this in history. But it's just kind of interesting that one of these times that seems very focused at the moment is coinciding with uh, this time that so many prophecies have said is going to be very significant. Well, certainly most important are the you know sort of global um, societal and, and uh, related changes that you just referred to. And we'll get to those in a little bit more detail just in a moment. I just wanted to say a little bit about the solar activity uh, that we mentioned. Um, you don't have to go very far. It might not be on the nightly news, but you don't have to look very far to find evidence, for example, NASA and other high profile um, scientific bodies and many, you know, establishment organs looking at this, researching it and publishing information that's saying, look, we, we should be concerned about this. Absolutely right. Um, about two years ago, NASA had a high-level meeting where they invited uh, various defense ministers, including our own, uh, and scientists from all around the world. And they basically sat them down and said, you need to take solar activity more seriously than you are. It is the biggest threat to our civilization. They have made some very loud noises about their expectations or fears, although they wouldn't say fears, but that the sun is about to throw out some kind of huge solar flare, which, of course, if aimed at us at the wrong moment, 
you know, it could knock out the world's electrical grids literally overnight. We know from past experience that uh, this has happened. Canada was very affected uh, back in uh, something like 2003 because mm -hmm. of solar activity, for instance. Um, and if you go back to 1859. Oh, the Carrington event. The Carrington event. Uh -huh. Now, the Carrington event was a huge solar flare that had it happened today would have knocked our civilization for six. Back then, it didn't matter that much because there were only a few telegraph systems and whatnot. Um, today, it would have a much more dramatic effect. Yeah, and I think that people imagine perhaps if there were some kind of um, solar flares, communication systems go down, electrical systems outed, that they perhaps don't realize that that could be everywhere and instantaneously, and that it would take, if you take that to happen in one country, say in North, never mind North America, in the UK, it would take months of every engineer working round the clock to even get the basic skeleton system back up and running again, assuming that they had the equipment they needed. And well, that's the thing, yeah. Mm. If they had it, I mean, the worst case scenario I've put, heard put forward is years. Because the problem you've got is that, and of course we don't know, it might not be as severe as some have predicted, we don't know, but... In the worst case scenario, you could have an electromagnetic pulse wave coming off the sun that not only wipes out all the live electricity grids, it also basically neutralizes every battery, wipes every database, everything is gone. There are no records, you know, in the so-called paperless society, just getting the normal infrastructure of life back up and running, even once you had the power back on in a few places you've then got to put everything else back together. And I don't think we're ready for that. And that's why NASA, in fact, a year or so after the meeting we just mentioned, they launched their Solar Shield initiative. And that is an attempt to try to encourage governments to put into place uh, power grids that use transformers that can be switched off individually. Part of the problem we have is if you get a huge wadge of electromagnetic energy, it gets absorbed by the system bang in one go at the moment. And what NASA is trying to encourage is the development of systems whereby you can take certain parts of it offline very easily so that the whole thing doesn't go down if they know that something big is coming in. Uh, and yet, as somebody said to me at uh, one of my lectures the other day, and they came up and said, well, you know what the problem is? They said, we work for one of the power companies, uh, and we've actually had this discuss at boardroom meetings. But the fact is, they're not willing to put the money in to make the changes. And so, you know, as ever, if there is a huge disaster, it might have happened uh, purely because nobody wants to spend the pennies today. Uh, and such is the way of human beings, I'm afraid. Well, I mean, that's where we very much are now at the minute. I, I find that unwillingness to uh, think about the future, never mind invest in the future, really seems to, in, in an odd way for me, it, it ties in with some of the, the, the feeling uh, that... Uh, that something is building, that we are moving towards some kind of shift. Because I find amongst young people incredible nihilism, not all of them, just some of them, and incredible resignation amongst um, older people that even in its most um, harmless form uh, takes the form of, oh, well, well, we just won't do anything just yet. We'll just wait and see what happens. Or I, I don't know what's going to happen next year. You know, I, I can't even see where I'll be in five years. And it's a not... In, you know, investing, thinking about the future, building for the future. It's very much a, a, a wait and see, like we are expecting something to happen. And then if it happens or doesn't happen, then maybe we could say, OK, now we can move on. 
Yes, I, I think that's true. I think everybody in their collective gut, even people with no awareness of the 2012 prophecies or any of that, they feel that something's going on. And I think particularly, I think particularly the older generations, and I spend a lot of time giving lectures to, you know, all sorts of people from the WI to Rotary Clubs or whatever, and school children as well, I've given talks to, you do sense that there is this sort of anticipation that people are worried. They're not sure where it's going to go. They know things aren't stable, but they're not quite sure what shape to give it in their minds. They're not sure what context to give it. And so, yeah, that can manifest as a sort of a, an existential crisis, a sort of inaction where they can feel something's brewing, but they're not sure what they are meant to do about it or with it. And I mean, I think that's why the more people that can discuss the possibility of all these changes on every level, from the real world to the more sort of, you know, spiritual uh, visions that some people are having. I think all of this does need to be brought to the surface because I think when something's openly discussed and you get a context for it, it's not so overwhelming. It's not so scary. And certainly that's why, you know, over the last few years, I've spent a lot of time talking about all of this for that very reason, because if then things do kick off, if then you do get big solar flares or whatever it may be, um, you might at least think, oh, okay, this might be a phase we got to go through. And also, people then might remember, hmm, and some of those prophecies said that mankind would actually be in a higher state of being at the other end of it. So that, you know, even though what could happen might still be very unsettling, it, it's then not so overwhelmingly scary. And I think that's very important that people need to know, yeah, there are cosmic cycles that periodically change our world. And uh, this may be one of them, and we've got to ride with it rather than fight it. Yeah, because from speaking for myself anyway, um, I've long felt, you know, probably lifelong actually, uh, when I became old enough to really regard the world uh, with open eyes that, you know, is this it? And I was always willing to consider the possibility that something, a 180 degree turn, something radically different could be better. And it seems that today there's never been more uh, you know, a greater lack of fulfillment and purpose and and happiness, and yet we've never had more material things. Certainly in in, in the, the Western industrialized world, um, and yet you know it's not making us happy. So I would like to think that at some point along this trajectory, that people could actually say, well, okay, well, don't be so afraid of having the the end of the world as you know it, because you don't like it that much. <laughs> that is one way of looking at it. I think, to be fair, though, of course, you know, the reality of something like that appearing to threaten, at least, you know, is something else. Uh, and maybe, as you say, the, the very sort of sudden thought that you could lose it might bring people back to appreciating what they do have. Uh, I, I do agree with that. Um, I mean, I think, obviously, we need to be careful that we don't see this through too Western-centric a viewpoint. Um, I'm sure that if you were to, you know, go to some countries, they're basically worrying about just getting through to the next day. They're not thinking about changes of consciousness and solar flares. Do you know what I mean? Um, but here in the West, we've got the time to think about that. We've got thing. We've got more to lose in a way if anything did suddenly knock our very technological civilization. And, and I think we'll take it the hardest. And I mean, certainly psychologically we do need to be preparing people. I mean, there are some people today that couldn't live without their iPhone for a day. 
never mind the bower going off and it not working for a year. You know, the psychological impact of a potential shift could be massive. Uh, and we need, I think, to be ready for all eventualities. And what we've got used to, certainly here in the West in the last few years, you know, we might have to live without it and we might have to find a, another way to survive without turn, turning into a pack of dogs. Do you know what I mean? Yes. These are the kinds of things that some people are thinking of. Well, I'm by no means wanting to raise up or in any way um, sort of, um, you know, glorify uh, an impoverished uh, lifestyle. Uh, just simply reflecting on the in actual fact, n not everywhere, of course, but in a lot of parts of the world, people with less um, are, tend to be more what we would call philosophical. And again, not trying to, be, you know, look at this from a patronizing Western perspective, but have more of a spiritual aspect to their existence and in any event i think re regardless of how we frame this debate that the, the the society that we have in the industrial west and um, is unsustainable and a lot of people are saying that these days but what they don't necessarily follow through with is the thought if something's unsustainable then it it must stop otherwise it's not unsustainable Hmm. Well, I think that's the thing. Ha having that sort of um, intellectual construct of uh, saying, oh, yes, well, this is unsustainable and the emotional and the physical reality of that actually beginning to manifest are really two very different things. I mean, I find it interesting that even in the kind of more new age realms where people have been talking about apocalyptic change for literally decades, whether it be through listening to psychic channelings or, you know, whatever it is. That's been very prevalent in that world. Now it looks like maybe that could happen. There's been an interesting retreat from some people who suddenly don't want to talk about it anymore. You know, all the time it had a sort of fairy tale like potential, the sort of mystical 2012 land somewhere in the future. Um, you know, it seemed like something quite exciting, something quite fun to think about. Now we're here. It's uh, interesting. I really noticed some of the people who were very much down that road have backed off. It's almost as if, oh, actually, here we are. and We don't want to really think about that anymore. So they're going off and doing other things, which I think is very interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I think buried deep within us is, as we open this conversation with this deep sort of fear, of shift, of change. And I think we need to sort of come out of that and actually embrace the opportunity and say, hey, okay, yeah, it wasn't working as it happens. And maybe it won't be so bad. It might not knock out everything. We might not be back to medieval times, but we might have to have a few power cuts and get used to having a bit less to eat. And, you know, but out of that might be born a new sense of community, a new sense of self-responsibility, which is, I think, part of the problem, is that we live very much in a civilization where everything's on a plate. And after a while, you just expect it to be on a plate. You don't feel that you have to really do anything to earn that. And, and I think that manifests in, for instance, the fact that younger people just think you should get music for free or watch films for free. Why should you pay? Download a book for free. It, this sense that there is no exchange, that you don't have to give anything, actually sort of goes against all previously established universal laws. And if there is a huge shift that knocks us a bit, we're going to have to go back to respecting that law of exchange again. So, you know, there's a lot of potential challenges, but out of them might come a very valuable lesson that might then help us sort of move on to that next level of, you know, true awareness. 
Yes, and I think I'll just add as a, a brief aside that uh, in the same category, um, as you put the, uh, you characterize the new age uh, gurus of decades gone by, I, w- I would put the survivalists and uh, some of their, particularly in the 70s and 80s, some of their fantasies. I can't remember what the very famous survivalist book was. It was a novel. And uh, you, oh, sorry, the title escapes me, but it was it was kind of quite seminal in its genre. And uh, so it was novel based, and uh, but it basically survivalist fantasy in a collapsing US of A. And I've noticed that there's a lot less people who are in the survivalist camp saying bring it on currently than there used to be. Uh, I think that's true. Or it may be that those people that do think like that, they, they think, right, we're here, no more talk, we're just going to hunker down in our little compounds and wait. Uh, I mean, certainly in America, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there with guns as well who are very much in that siege mentality waiting for something to kick off. But, yeah, no, I, I think at the same time there is that, okay, let's just wait and see now. Maybe... You know, now it's so close. Maybe we should just wait and see what unfolds. Um, and, yeah, I think there are lots of different strata of people and the religious viewpoint as well. You know, people waiting for the rapture in the Christian world, people waiting for ascension in the new age. Well, you know, they've all been waiting for this shift into some higher state of consciousness. But I think the danger of that's been over the years that there's a feeling that it should be a free lunch. You don't have to give anything for it. The reality, of course, was always likely to be very different. And uh, we might need to fight to survive through it and to fight for your spirit to come through it as well. So now that that challenge feels like, well, that could actually really happen. And as again, I don't mean necessarily all this year or even the next decade, but you don't know. In the next few decades, there could be enormous changes. Um, and so now people are gradually beginning to get that, oh, yes, maybe it won't be this cozy little science fiction world that we thought it would be uh, but then if they are coming to that realization you know you could argue of course that's a, a much healthier state of mind to be in oh yes harold camping calling it a little bit too early i think uh over in the states with his um apocalyptic cult oh by the way i think the book was called the turner diaries i might be wrong i'll, I'll go and look it up after we yeah, indeed <laughs> now with regard to making something positive out of all this that kind of makes me think of the aspect um the saying that um, uh, energy goes where attention flows and how we consider the issues around 2012 and even 2012 itself, uh, you know, the old self-fulfilling prophecy. And certainly energetically, we can affect the outcome, I think, even if only just on a human level. Well, I think we completely affect the outcome. I mean, if you look at the work of um, what they call the Global Consciousness Project, for instance, now, I mean, that began uh, at Princeton University and researchers like Dean Radin and all sorts of people like that have more or less proved that the human mind, when you have lots of them focusing together, it affects the energetic environment around us. You know, they've developed computers that will change their behavior, change the data they're producing, just in response to focused collective thought, without any physical connection between the people and the computer. And they've realized this is going on all the time on an everyday level. So that raises the, the kind of uh, opportunity, if you like, that 
maybe in addition to positive action, because you've got to match the two. We live in a physical world. You can't just live in a psychic world here. But in addition to that, you know, what we think, how we approach things is perhaps generating a collective consciousness field around us that would, of course, enormously help us if it was coming from a much more positive place and not a fear-based place, which is what's been, I think, very much built up, and I suspect deliberately by some quarters uh, over certainly the last few decades or so. So if we can step out of fear and step into that, yeah, actually, in any case, whether or not there is any truth to these prophecies, we're going to make a better world go in with that attitude on so many levels, psychic, social, spiritual, yeah, you're going to see a shift which, of course, could have a profound effect and put that together with some of the people who were saying that the very electromagnetic pulses that we start to get from the sun could actually rewrite our DNA, could cause us to create more uh, dimethyltryptamine in our brains, our pineal glands and all of this. If any of that's true, you know, you could have a huge leap forward coming from several different directions at once that, of course, may indeed, as some of the prophecies have said, leave us in a different state of being and hopefully a better one. This is speculation, of course, but I think there's nothing wrong with aspiring to a bit of that regardless. Well, quite. And there's a, the, the the accelerating uh, rate at which uh, it feels that change is happening certainly points towards something and it's it'll be interesting to see um, as 2012 unfolds, <clears throat> excuse me, if uh, nothing, no specific uh, event or nothing that's uh, noticeable on a global scale occurs. It'll be interesting to see, and we referred to this a little bit earlier, the aftermath of it, whether this feeling of uh, going towards narrowing towards a specific point at an increasing rate of speed, uh, whether that will continue. I think it will continue after a lull. I, I think if nothing tangible has occurred by the end of the year, in terms certainly a big consciousness shift, I think there will be people, the, the media will mock. I mean, they were mocking at the beginning of 2012 itself, saying, ah, ha, ha, we're all still here and now we're in 2012. You know, utterly missing the point that, of course, the big date everyone's talking about is at the end of the year. But, you know, we had that at the beginning. You'll get that again at the end. Some of those waiting, and there are some, waiting to be lifted up to the fifth dimensional or whatever interpretation they have of the ship. Yeah, I think they're going to be disorientated. I think they're going to have to perhaps come back down to earth and then you may see in the next year or two especially if then events do start to kick off um that it was never really just about one date it was about a gradual time of shift and then they'll start to meet the challenge and as i said earlier they'll start to look back at these times and realize that it was actually in a very important moment the prophecies are all about this being the beginning of the new era it's yes. not the new era itself it's the start of it it's the beginning of something that might take a long long time to unfold but at the same time if you look for the signs it's exciting there are things which certainly it doesn't feel like i remember the world feeling and certainly it's something that everybody has in their bones somewhere uh you know even if they've got as i said earlier on no context for it they feel it uh, and some of the lectures that i give to you know very sort of everyday groups it's quite interesting some of the statements people will make 
And, you know, you'll get your average WI member saying, oh, the world's not like I remember it. You know, there's definitely something in the offing. And they don't know really even why they're saying it, but they feel it. And when you make a presentation that starts to you know, give some shape to that, it's very interesting how quickly people do positively respond to that because they feel it. Uh, and I think we should never underestimate what the collective gut feels. Very, no, <clears throat> very, very important. You've really hit the nail on the head there. And, but, and I think from the mainstream we're generally told to dismiss that uh any type of intuition especially you know god forbid collective intuition is just dismissed as as bilge you know and if it can't be measured um it doesn't exist which actually is one of the very interesting aspects of the global consciousness project that you refer to because that's just what they've been doing well it's ironic as well isn't it that i mean in fact the scientific principles on which the Global Consciousness Project is based, are, are very sound. Uh, even that, uh, you know, is, is just rejected by some of the more hardline scientists. They say it's all nonsense. But I mean, you know, if you actually look at the studies over the years, many other different studies um, taken to show that the mind does affect the material world and that telepathy and all of this kind of thing actually does occur. When you look at a meta-analysis, as Dean Radin would say, of all the different tests ever taken, the information is overwhelming to suggest that there is a phenomenon here whereby we are much more than we've been told. And yet you've still got the very hardline scientists poo-pooing this, saying it's just complete nonsense. But then nine times out of ten, when you challenge them on it, uh, they've not actually read the data. And that's part of the problem. They don't want to read the data. Uh, and, you know, that's part of the problem. Everybody's got into their pigeonhole boxes and they fight their little camps instead of saying, hang on a minute, let's just stand back and see maybe, just maybe there could be some element of truth to that. But again, I'd like to hope that one shift we will begin to see now is science rediscovering spirit. Uh, which it is really, but it's almost as if now that it is, it doesn't like it very much. But sooner or later, I think it's going to come back to the idea of consciousness as a really meaningful entity, uh, albeit by its own means. Uh, and again, it's still early days, but I think that the data that's coming out of these experiments is extremely impressive. Uh, well, the last talk I did actually was with um, Anthony Peake, who you may be familiar with. Sure, yes. And uh, we, we talked at length about science and spirituality and this is not these are not two separate disciplines and and they're the sort of polar opposites that they seem to occupy at the moment well I suppose less so as you, as you just said but that's a relatively recent thing well yes I mean it, it is relatively recent and yet to say you look back and you can see all of this kind of way we are today the consciousness we're moving into now you can see that building over actually a longer time than it may at first appear I mean like we were saying the 2012 stuff didn't really even come to consciousness until post-millennium not seriously um, and so if you start to look back, the signs were there much earlier than they were. But certainly now everybody is recognizing that there's something going on. You know, that, that gives you that platform from which to say to them, yes, you're right. And here's some possibilities that might help you through it. Uh, and I think anybody that has an insight into these times has a kind of responsibility in a way to try at least to share it with people in a way that's, hopefully accessible and doesn't sound completely barking. And of course, you know, that's part of the problem is that 
we've had a media especially that has for so long made fun of anything remotely alternative that uh, it's closed people off from things that actually of course have some relevance and I'd like to hope and I think we're seeing the signs of this changing I'd like to hope that that, that is going to reverse uh, but it will take a concerted effort to do that. Well I'm not one necessarily for uh, technology or reliance on it but um, the internet this is the global brain and this has done so much uh, it, for so many aspects of what we're discussing and it's supposed to relate it back to what we we're talking about earlier one thing that would be on in many ways most unfortunate is if some occurrence you know in, in future something physical something cosmic were to sort of take down the internet because I mean, you're saying about people not being able to get through the day without their iPhone. So many of us, just from a communication point of view, and I don't mean just sending you know, emails to arrange meetings, but just to reach out to the rest of you know, humanity that the Internet has facilitated this. And again, that Western perspectives, so many parts of the world and so many people don't have access to this. But that is changing, and it would be a shame if the Internet wasn't able to grow to its fullest extent and i'm not even i'm not a tech guy so i don't even know what it could become but certainly more than it already is well i mean there's two things that i would say to that i mean first of all i think unless you're talking a seriously apocalyptic disaster and i don't know why but i don't feel it's going to be but that might be scurrilous nonsense but i think it will be a, some a more of a sort of the medium shift if anything's going to happen at all I think that we've got enough savvy to have preserved this technology somewhere. I mean, you can bet your life the governments of the world will have places where they somehow will have protected um, electricity grids. You know, nothing is going to be completely lost. So even if we had something that set us back as a civilization for maybe a decade or two, I think it would come back quite quickly. And I think it would come back with a vengeance and, uh, you know, leap forward. So there's that aspect to it, that unless it's a total, literally all life on Earth wiped out, in which case it doesn't really matter unless it's that i think all of this stuff will come back the other thing i want to say about the internet is that yes you're quite right that's been one of the huge tools for this new growth of consciousness it's given a forum for people who didn't have a voice before to now have one that's unsettled a lot of people there's a lot of people that don't think that's a good idea. There is no editorial filter. You don't need to have a publisher. You can say anything in one second and it's out on Twitter and several thousand people have read it. But that's the reality of where we're at. And of course, it is in a way a very democratic thing because of that. Equally, however, it's very open to abuse. And never mind a solar flare knocking out the Internet. Uh, you have legislation going through, particularly in the United States, masquerading as anti-piracy legislation and things like this, which is beginning to strangle the freedom of speech on the Internet. And of course, you know, some say, ah, yes, but total freedom of speech is not a good thing. But then any tool can be used for good or for bad. You know, you can kill someone with a hammer or you can make a cabinet with it. The Internet is the same. Um, there are people who would love to close down the freedom of speech and make, for instance, you know, truth websites and all of this have to prove what they're saying before they get a license to have a website. All of this is coming up towards us. Uh, and we need to be very wary of that because we should not take for granted the gift that the Internet has been and currently is. Uh, it could not or it could be the case that it does not necessarily continue like that. We need to be very vigilant and continually have our radars 
open for anybody that's trying to shut it down. And there are people who are and would love to stop all this tattle-tattle about change of consciousness and people questioning everything from 9-11 to climate change. They don't like it. Uh, and yet, of course, that's been one of the very things that's given us this uh, opportunity to even be discussing this. The fact that here I am talking to you on Skype and people are going to hear this on the Internet. You know, we couldn't have imagined that 15 years ago. Uh, now we can do it. We don't think anything about it. It's enabled a very fast growth of this kind of new consciousness, if you wish to call it that. But equally, it could be taken away very quickly if we're not very, very careful. And we need to cherish and look after the Internet, accept its bad bits, try to bring more consciousness to that, and try to use it better, but equally to not let it get taken away from us while we're not looking. Yeah, because the Internet is just like a, you know, a big crowd of people. You know, there might be a few pickpockets, there might be a mugger, there might even be a murderer or a rapist in there somewhere. But collectively, it's about what the group's about, what the energy's about, how that directs, you know, the future of it, emphasizing certain things, de-emphasizing others. And it's about the overall direction of travel without trying to manipulate and control it. Um, but to make it, you know, sort of an organic thing growing in a positive direction. Well, I mean, the other thing to consider is that we're on the cusp, we're on the cusp of a technology where, assuming technology keeps going in the way that it is, you're not going to be sitting in front of a computer screen doing the internet. You're going to have it in your eye. I mean, just uh, the other week, the military have developed contact lenses where they can beam images into the contact lenses so soldiers will have information screened in their eyes about what they're looking at. Before very long, we'll all be doing that. There'll be real-time connection with the Internet in your head. They've already developed technology where you can move a cursor on a screen by just thinking in certain parts of your brain. We're at the beginning of a biotechnology sort of interface, which has some wonderful things and some very frightening things. It could be massively open to abuse. But the reality is, that you know, yeah, what you were saying about the collective brain, the global brain, Yes, I think that will occur, but we need to be ever so careful, especially when we're just walking around with this in our heads, that A, we sort of uh, don't just live in a constant haze of never really being present, which could easily happen. You know, to look at the way people constantly are looking into their phones now. Uh, but equally, the what is governing that is entirely democratic and is never left to one regime to dictate what is on that, because already the information that's available on the internet is filtered and the fact that so many people for instance base their knowledge on wikipedia to the exclusion of all else is worrying because a lot of stuff particularly in the alternative realms on wikipedia is not reliable mm. the basic stuff's pretty good and it's a useful tool but it, it should never be used nothing should ever be used as an exclusive information tool because that's how the information is controlled uh, and I think that the more we access the Internet and we become technology through the biotechnological sort of interface, the more there will be a scrabble to make damn sure that it's completely controlled, albeit not advertised. And that's the thing, you know, it won't be advertised that they're doing this. It will be very subtle. Uh, and that's what's already happening. So there are so many wonderful opportunities coming up. You know, the world in a thousand years time is going to be very, very different. 
what you consider to be the real world, what you consider to be the virtual world may not matter by then. When everything's indistinguishable, does it matter what world you're living in? Um, As long as the morals of the decisions you're making still count, there will be great debates about this. The whole way the world is going to change will enable us in a thousand years, if we have survived with technology continuing, to look back at these times and see Never mind the prophecies. Again, a lot of stuff was birthed here in these times. And therefore, the consciousness we bring to bear on it now could have a massive effect on how it gets used in the future. Uh, we need to you know, create the most positive space, the most positive environment in which that can grow with a very sort of uh, deep, compassionate and moral awareness while we have the chance to make those choices before it just gets away from us and just rolls on by itself. But, you know, either way, these times will be seen as crucial. Well, I think, Andy, that's a a very erudite statement, if you mind me saying so, about, you know, the the 2012 phenomenon and where we are and where we might be going. And um, I'd like to turn uh, to talk a little bit uh, in a UK-centric sort of way about the upcoming 2012 London Olympics, uh, but is there anything that you'd particularly like to, to add to the discussion we've just had? Well, I think only that I think anybody that's interested in this being a time of shift, you know, they owe it to themselves to go and check out all the different sources and look at all the prophecies, find out what they are. There's a lot of misrepresentation of them. Uh, and I think try to come out of any kind of dogma about it. Nobody knows what's going to happen. You know, maybe the sun won't do very much for a while. Maybe it will. We don't know. Um, but I think the more sort of aware you are of all the possibilities, then I think the more likely it is that you'll use these times positively. Uh, if you go into it, I think, uh, slightly blind to where it could go, then, of course, you're going to have problems. So just going in with full awareness, eyes wide open, you know, would be the best sort of advice that I would give. Okay, well, turning to uh, 2012 and the Olympics, and even saying the two uh, you know, two phrases in one sentence uh, kind of reminds us how they become intertwined um, I say that not just literally the Olympics happening this year, but just because of the significance of this year that's brought a few interesting wrinkles into thoughts about the Olympics. And I remember very well on July the 6th um, when the Britain's successful bid to host the Olympics, um, uh, that was announced. And then the next morning I found myself on a train to King's Cross and the whole polarity between those two days created a tremendous, in my way of thinking, a tremendous spasm, convulsion of energy from this elation, albeit one that I personally couldn't feel and didn't quite understand, but it was okay, these national celebrations that the nation insists on doing from time to time. I could see certainly economic reasons for rejoicing. Uh, And then what followed the next day, it was... It was way beyond nice cop, nasty cop. It was something I thought about it for a long time. It felt very, very strange. Well, I I think that that the way that began is sort of, you know, has a lot to say about the hopes and fears for where we are at now. Because, yeah, wasn't it interesting that there was all this fantastic elation and then suddenly you were sort of thrown down into the deepest blackness and some of course believe that that was deliberately contrived and we cannot get away from the fact that conspiracy theory 
uh, is rife. And it's something that I study and I'm very interested in, and I am therefore, by definition, a conspiracy theorist. Um, but if you look at the polls, if you look at what people do believe about the world they're in, it's remarkable how many people think that events are manipulated uh, and that there's constantly some weird psychosocial sort of experiment going on. And that what happened with the announcement that London had got the Olympics and then the bombs the next day, some people think it's too coincidental. It was a kind of a mind game, as you said, good cop, bad cop. And, of course, here we are now in the year of the Olympics themselves. And, of course, people think the same games may be about to be played out. Now, I hope that they won't be. But again, I, as we've said in this conversation so far, I think if you can bring things to consciousness and awareness, I th you hope that it helps the worst case scenarios not to occur. Uh, and equally, by creating awareness, you hope that people will go into it more wide open. But... The fears that are being seeded around the Olympics at the moment, and I would also add the Diamond Jubilee, which yes. comes, of course, before the Olympics, they're very profound, and it's it's the media that's actually seeding a lot of them. Uh, and you could therefore argue the establishment in general. The amount of TV coverage we had about potential rioting, potential terrorist attacks, the fact that the fear mentality around the Olympics is so massive that they've got surface-to-air missiles all the way around the Olympic Stadium. First time ever, and we've had at least two games since the war on terror began, so why now? Uh, you've got all of that. You've got, you know, thousands of American troops coming over to supposedly guard their own troops and London going into lockdown. And then on top of this, all this kind of talk of all the terrible things that could occur. Now, is this just sort of the English sort of personality coming through? You know, that cynicism, always that sort of slightly, uh, you know, uh, dark view of things, what could go wrong. But then you hope that really it does go all right. Or is there some other message being seeded here? Lots of people think that there is. And of course, you know, one of the darker things that has been put forward is that maybe somebody somewhere may attempt to do something horrible during the Diamond Jubilee so that by the time we get to the Olympics, you know, the effective martial law that could have come in will be locking down the whole of southeast England, certainly London, uh, in a way that's kind of a huge experiment with control and surveillance coming in that will never be taken away. I hope that's wrong, but I concede that there are signs that uh, there are some, shall we say, very strange sort of atmospheres being placed around it, or not least in some of the symbolism that's being used in the Olympics. Yeah, well, perhaps you could talk a little bit about that, because it's something I wanted to touch upon. And, uh, you know, Olympics have always been about symbolism. Uh, the, the Olympic rings themselves, you know, a somewhat controversial symbol in, in some quarters. Um, but, uh, you know, perhaps you, you could just um, speak to that. Well, I mean, one of the things that the conspiracy theorists have uh, a particular issue with is uh, sort of embedded symbolism. Now, what is curious here is that uh, this year, of course, we have mascots for the Olympics that seem to be a single eye over a pyramidal sort of body. Uh, Wenlock and Mandeville, as they're called. And, I mean, initially, nobody really liked them anyway. Anthropologists said these are useless for kids. There's no face. There's nothing a child can latch onto. But, of course, the conspiracy world looked at it and said, well, it looks very like the all-seeing eye over the pyramid to us, but with legs. 
Um, it has to be said, the more you look at it, you think, yeah. If anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, I mean, if you look at the dollar bill, you've got the famous eye over the pyramid, which defenders say is purely a mystical, rather sacred symbol. The conspiracy theorists say it's the all-seeing eye showing who's really ruling the planet, you know, and so on. But either way, it is an occult symbol. So you've got that embedded in the Olympic mascots. You've also got it arranged all the way around the edge of the stadium. Because if you look at the lighting gantries around the Olympic Stadium, you will see that each one is a near perfect, albeit abstract, representation of the eye over the pyramid. Um, even to the point where you've got the light bulbs in the top of the gantry uh, and the, the way they're arranged looks somewhat like an eye. There's then a part under the light bulbs which isn't lit that matches proportionally the uh, gap between the uh, capstone and the pyramid on the dollar bill symbol. Uh, and it just seems too much coincidence that it looks like that, especially given the uh, Olympic mascots. So inevitably, that's causing speculation that basically the Olympic Stadium is one big occult temple. Uh, and especially where it's positioned, um, you know, near Canary Wharf, there's claims of all sorts of alignments. Canary Wharf in itself, of course, has a great big glass pyramid on the top. And there's lots of conspiracy theories about the alignments of Canary Wharf. The fact that this all seems to tie in with the Olympics says to some that it's a message, that again, there's some kind of weird control experiment going on here, some psychological sort of test. And I mean, when you then put that together with the other things going on in the year, like the um, Diamond Jubilee, you have to realize that authorities, I think, are very aware of mysticism and the occult. I mean, if you look at the Bohemian Grove, uh, rituals which go on each year. There's a secret society called the Bohemian Club and uh, they hold this ritual called the cremation of care when they dress up in funny robes and sacrifice the effigy of a child to a giant stone owl and all of this. This is real. It goes on in California every year. Very high level politicians including some of our own, your Blairs, your Bushes, your Kissingers, your Nixons, sooner or later they all show up there. Now, the kind of people that would do that and not think anything about that wouldn't think twice about embedding lots of occult symbolism in. And also, they wouldn't think twice about using things like astrology to time these things out. Now, uh, if you look at the whole astrology of this year, even without the prophecies, you've got a very tensional time coming up, in England especially. You've got a square of Pluto and Uranus coming up, which as uh, Helen Sewell, the astrologer, has pointed out, uh, is basically going to cause an enormous sort of tension between authority, represented by Pluto, uh, and Uranus, the rebel. Basically, factions coming together trying to sort of get the upper hand on each other. You've got that going on. And then you look at the weekend, they chose to celebrate the Diamond Jubilee. And astrologically, given that there's a full moon uh, on the very day they're doing all of this, it's the worst weekend they could possibly have chosen. Now, I know that not everybody believes in astrology, but even if you don't, and I do personally, but even if you don't, the powers that be, I believe, do. I think they very carefully chose that weekend. And uh, Helen Sewell has pointed out, and I hesitate to say this, but the astrological aspects are not dissimilar to what we had on 7-7. Uh, when we had the bombings. And all I can say is I hope that it's pure coincidence. 
Um, but there are prophecies of people saying, yep, they're going to say something horrible, they're going to do something awful to the royal flotilla. I hope not. Uh, uh, and I really hope that the more people that talk about this, the less chance there is that such a thing could happen. But astrologically, Britain and England in particular was always going to be sort of on the world stage this year. And isn't it interesting that 2012, this beginning of the new era that so many people have been talking about, here we are on the world stage for that year. And in the same way that when everybody watched the Chinese Olympics, for instance, you know, everybody around the world was talking about what was going on in China. Well, um, everyone's going to be talking about whatever's going on here. And if there are protests, if there are events, if there is trouble on the streets, whatever it may be, and we saw some of that last year, of course, everyone's going to be watching it. And some say that the whole thing could be some weird, you know, experiment to try to kick the new era off in a negative way. And certainly the fear that is being spun around the Olympics by very official channels and all the kind of anti-terror stuff, you've got to have some of that, of course, but some feel that it's going beyond the call of duty. It's actually putting out something that's not feeling so nice. Maybe, maybe it's a way to sort of neuter the, the energy of the beginning of the new era, which, yes, might come by the end of the year, but if stuff kicks off in the summer, that's still going to be very much in people's minds. And that's why I think it's very important we focus positively. Now, I know some people will say, well, yes, but you've just made me afraid. Yes, uh, that's the problem. If you're going to identify potential difficulties, you've got to address the negative. But that doesn't mean you then keep going like that. So what I'd say is, OK, if any of this is true, if the conspiracy theorists are right about this, then we need to be putting out something very positive, which balances that and making people very aware and saying, right, let's make the beginning of this new era the best it can be. Let's take it by the horns and create a really, really positive environment in which we can move forward into whatever may come. Yeah, I must say my instinct, and I'll admit that this was on the day, this was on July the 6th when I watched this announcement on television that London had got the Olympics, was, whoa, stay away from London. And then laterally I'd thought, well, if I, if I decide around that time or during the Olympics I want to go to London for some unrelated reason, why shouldn't I just go? You know, I thought, am I just guilty of sort of, you know, hedging my bets and, and buying into, you know, feelings of negativity that may amount to nothing? Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, each person has to look at how they feel inside themselves as to whether they do show up in the city at that time or, you know, what they choose to do. I mean, I know there are some people, because they're worried, they're planning on doing mass meditations to kind of pour positive energy into it, which I think is a very good thing. Um, others, of course, would have loved to have been there and couldn't get a ticket. That's a whole other business. Um, I think each individual is going to have to look very carefully at how they feel. Some are utterly indifferent to the games, can't wait for it all to be over. But I do think it is an opportunity for a country to shine. And isn't it a shame that, I mean, if you want to, you know, just go one stage further with the symbolism of the Olympics, that the, the huge sculptural tower that they've built next to the uh, Olympic Stadium is really horrible. It's this twisted mass of scaffolding that I haven't yet heard a single person say is nice. Um, instead of putting out an image of soaring Britain, you know, thrusting forward Britain, 
Uh, instead, it looks twisted. It looks unstable. And uh, indeed, uh, when uh, Anish Kapoor, the architect, was quizzed about why he designed it the way he did, he actually said, I wanted the sensation of instability, not instability, instability. So the, the very symbolism of the Olympics, never mind the all-seeing eye occult stuff, it's saying unstable Britain, unstable Britain. It's a very curious thing that there are hidden messages in all of this. And as I say, maybe we're all getting too carried away and they'll be the best games ever. I hope they are. I really will be glad to be wrong on everything here. But it's just curious the signals that are going out. And, uh, yeah, people need to think very carefully about you know, whether they support it or what they do while it's going on. Uh, and that's something only an individual can decide. Well, even on an aesthetic level, if it was a corporate makeover, you know, new um, branding for some corporation you would have to say it was uniquely unattractive. And, and, and you know, uh, corporations spend a lot of money saying, what does this convey? What emotion does this convey to our potential customers? And right down to the, I was going to say to the Zion logo, but right down to the 2012 itself, that the numbers, um, it's just, you know, it's just some kind of spaghetti dish gone wrong. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not pretty. It doesn't have to be pretty, but it's not nice to look at. It isn't. I mean, I think we should just qualify, you know, what you mentioned there. I mean, of course, the other big thing was that um, Iran and the conspiracy theorists claimed that the 2012 logo, if you sort of rearrange the, the digits, it spells out the word Zion, which it does, sort of. Is that deliberate? Is it an in-joke? Don't know. But of course, the minute you say that, uh, you, you're down that whole sort of Zionist conspiracy theory thing. And I think you can get sucked down that to the exclusion of other things that are going on. And I think we need to be quite careful about that. And yet you can't deny that it does. I think it's another curiosity that uh, obviously needs some thought. Um, it might also be argued, isn't it interesting, that a lot of people said it looked like it had been designed by a child. And funnily enough, then for the Diamond Jubilee, they actually did get a child to design the logo for that, So, uh, which I thought was rather amusing. Yeah, but wouldn't it have been nice, <laughs> for want of a better word, if they'd had an Olympics where you looked at the branding and the, the buildings and everything they'd done it and all the work and everything that was being put out, and you go, no, yep, I'm happy with that. Nothing to see here. It's, it's an Olympics. It's going to be good. Looking forward to it. Firework display. Nothing more to see here. Move along. Rather than just reams and reams that you can get into. And even if you, however clear headed you try to stay about it, to stay regarding it, it's kind of well, yeah, this is really strange. Why have they done this? You know, because symbolism, of course, is one of the cornerstones of magic. And yeah. yes. one, of the, one of the aspects of that is exerting the will uh, to gain control. And there's no question that symbols affect us, especially collectively. They do. Now, I mean, the thing is, the authorities are not stupid. And they're very aware of what the conspiracy theories are and all of this. And it's almost as if they're baiting people. They could have come up with a much better logo, one without a dot that didn't neatly make an eye in the word Zion. You know, they could have not fallen into any of that, but they didn't. They could have had logos and symbols and lighting gantries that didn't look like the all-seeing eye. That's why it gets quite hard to think, hang on a minute, didn't somebody somewhere think, actually, maybe we'd better not go down that route? And when they chose the tower, you would have thought somebody said, oh, come on, guys, that's rubbish. 
let's just have something simple and nice, you know, like the Skylon Tower at the Festival of Britain or something. But it's like at, at every turn, they, they've tried to do something which deliberately was just guaranteed to upset people. And then on top of that, you know, just the, the security operation around it, it just gives you a weird feeling about it. Yeah, and I totally agree. I wish that we could be enjoying this and say, great, we got the Olympics even if it's not your thing and you're worried about the money being spent on it, which is a whole other ball game, you could say, well, nonetheless, you know, let's hope we have our best games ever. And it's, you know, it's all marvellous and pretty. And yet it isn't. And they've gone out of their way, seemingly, to make it not. So this is the strangeness of what's going on. And again, I think, as you say, because symbolism is, at the end of the day, a very powerful tool, um, you then have to say that uh, you could be construed as somebody trying to sort of skew the gates into this new era to make sure that it gets off to a bad start, which I think is very unfortunate. And that's why as many people as possible need to try to change that so that it gets off to a good start. And we need to reclaim this. If they can't design something decent, we need to have to put out a better energy to balance that uh, in whatever way we can, albeit just on a personal level. Well, I guess the Olympics, uh, well, the Jubilee will be with us before the Olympics, which will be with us before um, December 21st. So we shall we shall see what happens. But in any event, whatever does occur or does not occur, our response to it, as you've emphasised earlier, will be key. Well, I think it will be. Uh, and when we get to the end of this year, we'll obviously be able to get a better shape of, you know, whether this was all madness. If nothing drastic occurred before the end of the year, that I think would bode well, and then everybody can celebrate the solstice, 21st of December, and okay, the world won't end, probably, on that day, but then, you know, we can celebrate being a good frame of mind. If anything has happened, I think we will actually still need to try to take ourselves into the same positive frame of mind anyway. Um, this is the thing. One thing I've always argued over the last few years, especially, is that even if it turned out there was nothing to any of the prophecies, it was all madness, it doesn't matter. It's already had a positive effect. I mean, I know many people who have changed their lives in anticipation that something might happen. They've thought, well, you know, if everything did go belly up, I'd like to be in a good state. I'd like to be in a good relationship. I'd like to be in the job that works for me. I don't want to be thinking, oh, my God, I just sort of did nothing and my life was rubbish. Um, that in itself is a shift in consciousness. So many have said that, yeah, well, I just felt I wanted to sort myself out. What more could you ask for? That is, that is the beginning of a new consciousness. And that's what you're seeing on, on a subtle level with all the people trying to create better political situations for themselves around the world. It's being abused, of course, uh, as it always is, and uh, manipulated, but still what shines in the eyes of the people who are out there positively trying to create change, and that is real. Can't take that away from them, and that is true here too. So, you know, this summer you're going to get a lot of people trying to use that exposure that England's going to get to draw attention to their needs. But let's hope that we can try to do that in a positive way so that we can say, well, you know what, 2012 was a positive year. Uh, and no matter what else happened, we put something into it which changed us. And by the sheer domino effect of the law of the universe, it will change others. And put that together with the collective consciousness process that we were discussing earlier on, 
You don't know what profound effect it could all have. And therefore, all this speculation about 2012 was worthwhile. And as I say, it might take a few years to look back and see that that was the case. But uh, I think we need to hang on to that. There will come a time, in my view, where people will look back and say, yeah, this was a crucial time. And if, on the other hand, we have ascended into the fifth dimension and something amazing and marvellous has happened, well, it won't matter. We'll all know that and we can celebrate from that perspective as well. Yes, and if people are, if there are some who wish the world to change profoundly and it doesn't quite take the form they thought it should, when it should, how, you know, upon whom, they should understand that if they set themselves on a, path as if it had happened is happening will happen then it will actually change for that reason alone they will change it well i think that that is the bottom line of all of this yes and as i say i I think that has happened and is happening and so therefore the more people that can become aware of the meaning of these times the more that effect will grow and you know there'll be less of all this sort of fear talk and the doom mongering and a little bit more of tapping into what the Mayans called it, which is creation day. This is about creating of something new, you know, a clean sort of blank sheet where we can write the world as we want, if we choose. And there'll be lots of people trying to make sure that we don't, but we have to rise above that as well. And how we behave in our personal lives, how we talk to the people in our lives, be it friends or family or colleagues, and what we talk to them about is going to have a profound effect. If you want the dominoes to start falling, you have to come out of your shell and be who you are and be open about talking about this kind of stuff. Don't fear the ridicule. Don't worry about what people think. If you've got slightly unusual views on it, go for it. I always personally find that actually the more you do that, it's amazing who responds. And even people that you wouldn't necessarily think would go along with that can surprise you. And they might say, say at the end of a talk or something, yes, you know, I've long thought that, but um, hadn't really ever sort of focused it. And so I think that's the thing, that feeling in the collective gut, it just lacks focus. The more people that talk about it, the more others will see, oh, maybe that makes sense of that feeling, and the more we'll move forward. Well, I think in any event or non-event that uh, December the 21st, um, 2012, will probably be a very interesting 24 hours. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people doing a lot of things slightly differently as a result. And oh, there yes, may absolutely. well be some good television coverage. I would imagine that um, anybody who lives near a sacred site can fully expect to see a lot of people out at the sacred sites. Um, and let's hope we don't get a battle in the bean field or any of this nonsense. There, of course, will be people that will want to be at the big sites. We're not just here, you know, uh, all around the world, particularly around the Mayan pyramids and all of this. I dare say it's going to be packed. But then that's fine. You know, if what that does is to link us back to our spiritual heritage, you know, our ancient heritage, we realize that we still have a resonance with the mindset of the people who were around back then. That again, it sort of completes the circuit. Uh, it, it reminds us that we're not separate to what went before and that therefore what comes in another 5,125 years is not separate from us. And you hope that, you know, however much that world may be unrecognizable, they may look back and remember that we kicked it off. And if we kicked it off positively, we'd like to hope that that will be remembered. I think that's probably the perfect note on which to end our discussion. 
Andy, thanks. It's been just great. Would you like to perhaps uh, tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and your work and uh, your publications? For sure, yeah. I mean, uh, if anybody wants to find out uh, about me and uh, the, the book that I'm very well known for, which discusses much of this, uh, is a book called The Truth Agenda. So if you go online to uh, truthagenda.org, truthagenda.org, uh, you'll find out where I'm speaking and uh, a lot about the book and stuff and uh, links to some other things. Uh, or if anybody wants to look at uh, Vital Signs Publishing, .co.uk, uh, you'll see some of my previous books on uh, unexplained mysteries and all sorts of stuff. So uh, you'll find me one way or the other. And, uh, you know, what I would say to everybody is that anybody that's got an awareness of all this kind of stuff, spread the word. Don't hide the light under a bush or, you know, put your links up there, put, you know, whatever it is you're doing out to the world. And uh, then people will find you as well. Andy Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Well, that's all for this time. As Andy mentioned, you can visit his website at truthagenda.org for further information on his books and speaking engagements. And it's also worth having a look at vitalsignspublishing.co.uk, which is the website of Andy's publishing company. Uh, There you'll find books by him and other authors on a range of fascinating subjects. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat. And you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.